The following podcast is a Dear Media production. She's a lifestyle blogger extraordinaire. Fantastic. And he's a serial entrepreneur. A very smart cookie. And now Lauren Everts and Michael Bostick are bringing you along for the ride. Get ready for some major realness. Welcome to the Skinny Confidential, him and her. Aha! Everybody, there's been outstanding, wonderful moments where, you know, Elvis Costello came out and sang with The Clash and just magnificent rock and roll history of Pink Pop. But they had a vote in Holland, the top 10 most memorable moments of Pink Pop, and mine is in the top 10 that I, I just did made a disaster. Drum roll, please. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages. We are back again. That clip was from our guest of the show, Bob Forrest. How I love Bob Forrest. How I love Bob Forrest. And on this episode, we are talking drugs, alcohol, rock and roll, addiction, recovery. We're talking about a lot of things. I swear to God, I think I could bring Bob back on this show or we could bring Bob back on this show and just do segments called Bob Forrest, True Hollywood Stories. Honestly, he has so many different facets of his life and so many different layers. We didn't even know where to go in this interview. Yeah, we just we first met Bob when Lauren went on his podcast with Alexis Haynes. And I got to say, of there's a lot of people we've met up here in Hollywood. And this guy has to be one of the nicest, most interesting, humble, down-to-earth guys that we've met. A hundred percent. It's Again, it's so nice to meet someone that is humble and has no ego. And they're just fucking cool, you know? Just he's just a fucking cool guy. Yeah, he is. He just is, and he's lived a really fucking cool life, which we you know we dive into on this episode, and I'll give a, a much deeper introduction in a minute. But just know this guy has kind of done it all. Most of you probably know him from his days on Celebrity Rehab. If you're a little bit older, maybe know his days as you know back when he was in a band called Thelonious Monster. If you really know, maybe you've seen him with Anthony Kiedis, Flea, Red Hot Chili Peppers. He's he, this guy knows everybody. Anyways, before we get into the episode, Lauren, how you doing? I'm doing good, Michael. I'm a little hungry. Michael had to go get me a bagel this morning. I wanted a specific bagel. And so I feel like I want to eat that right now, but I don't want to eat it on air. Shout out to the Yeasty Boys. Oh, um, so good. They have a food truck here in LA that we love. Dude, get a blueberry bagel with plain cream cheese, but also get an everything bagel with plain cream cheese because you're going to want to. Here's the trick. And I don't want to go on this for too long, even though I love the Yeasty Boys because there's everyone you know that listens to the show is not in LA. But if you are in LA, you got to check them out. It's a food truck. Um, but but I will warn you, it moves all over the place. I had to basically track it today through Instagram and drive 40 minutes all the way to Studio City and back. Um, and so that's not so convenient, but they're all over the city. You just got to track them down. I've never had to track a food truck. I've never that's I've never done that in my life until today. I text you my order and then said, don't you dare come back empty handed or I'll slit you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, happy wife, happy life. We've been talking a lot about addiction lately with Alexis, your sister, Khalil. It's an interesting topic, and I know it probably brings up some feelings for you. How do you, Lauren, how do you feel talking about this? Because I know you've, you've had family members struggle with addiction. I'm just so happy that we have this platform where we can bring people on who have experienced addiction and have come out through the other side. Like This is what, when I started The Skinny Confidential, what I wanted to do with it the whole time. It's like, bring all different walks of life on the blog, on the podcast, share their story, share their experience and take what you love out of this interview or any interview and leave what you don't like. And if there's anything in here that can enhance your life or inspire you, that makes me happy. I mean, the, the thing that makes me the happiest about these conversations 
is you realize like these are just people just like all of us right they have stories like there's so people are so quick to judge when it comes to sex or drugs or just you know topics that aren't covered in mainstream media and i think you know it's it's so important to bring these conversations to light and like lauren said take what you like leave what you don't but please if they're gonna one thing is just leave your judgments until you hear somebody's story that's like the biggest thing i've learned i also think that after you know what i've seen in my own family and and all the people that we've interviewed that have dealt with addiction that sobriety is a hard thing it's not like you just get sober and then you're sober for two years and there's nothing to it it's something that you truly deal with day to day to day i mean it's something you have to work at it's almost like you know marriage isn't just something that's easy and seamless addiction is fucking difficult yep and like you know a lot of these conversations are presenting and i could be wrong here but i don't think that i am a lot of this has to do with childhood trauma which not a lot of us control at the time so it's just it's good to, to leave a compassionate place in your heart when you're having these conversations that being said talking about one of the most compassionate human beings we've ever talked to, Bob Forrest. He's known for being a recovery advocate. He's the co-founder of the Aloe House Recovery Centers. He's also been on Celebrity Rehab with Dr. Drew. Many of you recognize him with his long hair and hat. And he's also a complete badass rock star. Um, had a band called Thelonious Monster back in the day. Did a lot of crazy shit. Good friends with Red Hot Chili Pepper bandmates Flea and Anthony Kiedis, among many other famous people. And this guy could tell stories for days. Sometimes I just, when I talk to Bob, I just sit there and listen with my mouth open. It's amazing. He told me this one story about Axl Rose hitting this girl in the head with a mic stand, and then he tried to fight him, and then... Axel Rose ended up beating him up. Crazy story. Just wild stories like that. You're like, what? With your mouth hanging open, especially someone like me who's such a fan of old rock and roll. Um, So with that, guys, here's a true Hollywood story and legend from Bob Forrest. We have a group of uh, what I would say are highly intelligent, really, really smart, effective podcast audience members. But there's still a couple dum-dums out there. And those dum-dums are the ones that are not yet signed up for thrivemarket.com. What the hell are you doing? You guys, I'm telling you, I have a curated page with all my favorites. It's a couple clicks. The prices are insane. Like it's it's so much better than in the market. And you don't have to worry about going to the market, which is so annoying. So you can get everything from my favorite spicy arbiata pasta sauce to my obsession strawberry organic licorice to even organic pumpkin for your dogs and wait a minute if you're one of those people that's out there listening being like wait a minute did michael just call me dumb am i mad that he did that think again i am offering you 25 to 50 percent below retail by going to thrivemarket.com skinny because they source the best ingredients and cut out all the middlemen so it's a smart move it's what the smartest people do, guys. Michael, you know what you need today? What do I need? You need some calm. And calm is on my curated list. Calm is magnesium, and you could really use some today, guys. I'm telling you, it gets things moving, Michael, so you're going to feel a little less jittery, and also it calms you down. So I promise I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop berating the audience. I just want to talk about Thrive, guys. They source all the best ingredients, like I said. You can shop by specific diets, whether you're paleo, gluten-free, vegetarian, whether you're looking for baby supplies, household supplies, beauty supplies, wine, any wine drinkers out there? Organic wine. Meat, fish, they have everything. It comes 
comes straight to your door. It saves you time. You don't have to be a dum-dum. Sorry, I insulted you again. Don't have to be a dum-dum running around the grocery store with your head cut off wondering, what do I buy here? What do I buy there? They do all the work for you. So head over to my curated Thrive page, guys, because it has my raw almond butter that I like, my Indian healing clay that I use on my face, my raw apple cider vinegar, and even the rose water. It's like this mist that I love in the morning. I'm sorry for insulting everybody. And to make it up, I'm going to give you an offer now. Go to thrivemarket.com slash skinny for 25% off your first order, plus free shipping. Again, that's thrivemarket.com slash skinny for 25% off your order and free shipping. Enjoy, 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 and join the rest of us smart Thrive Market users. And whatever you do, make sure you pick up the Calm Magnesium. I'll give Michael some tonight. This is the Skinny Confidential, him and her. My most celebrated moment was uh, we had this song called Body and Soul. I was in a band called Thelonious Monster, and it became like a top 10 hit for a few weeks or something. And it was right when we were playing this big rock festival in, in Holland called Pink Pop. And so, and I was a heroin addict, but, and I con- kind of controlled my world. Like everything revolved around Bob getting well, playing at night, and the whole structure of touring was kind of, and there was two other heroin addicts in the band. Everybody understood. We have to, we have our priorities. So I stay up all night with Lenny Kravitz and my, my friend's dad, and we're just doing coke and partying till like five in the morning. And then somebody starts pounding on my door at like 9.30 in the morning, which usually you're not allowed to do that. I don't go to Bob's room until it's like 2 or 3 or 4 in the afternoon, <laughs> right? So so I open the door, it's our road manager, and, and he's like, we have to go. Where are you? I've been calling you, and I just put a pillow over the phone. And he's like, I said, where the fuck are we going? What time is it? And he's like, "We're playing. you're playing at 2 in the afternoon. We have to go. It's way outside of town. And I go, dude, I don't have any dope. And he goes, it's not my problem. And I, so I was dope. I was driving out of Amsterdam, or the center of all dope in Europe, to go to some fucking festival out in the middle of nowhere where there was no heroin. I thought kind of I wasn't sick yet, but I was really hungover from drinking and doing drug and coke. And, and I thought, well, somebody will have heroin out there. This is Holland after all. And I kept walking around kind of trying to t- ask people walking in the crowd, do you have any heroin for sale? You know where to get any dope. And then I'm panicked. And so then I go back to the dressing room. We're supposed to play in an hour. And I there was a bottle of Jägermeister there. And I thought, okay, I'll just get through this hour and, you know, get drunk and then and then uh, you know, get back to Hall to Amsterdam, get heroin. So I drank about a third of the bottle of Jägermeister on an empty stomach on a hangover, dope sick. Well, can then you I put, walked what's out it like being dope sick? <laughs> then I walked out on stage in front of 50,000 people. Jesus Christ. Can, <laughs> is kinda, this, does this footage exist somewhere? Huh? Does this footage exist yeah, somewhere? Yeah, it exists. You can see it. It's kind of legendary. So, so this year, Pink Pop is in June. This year is the 50th anniversary of Pink Pop. Now, you have to understand, Led Zeppelin play, played Pink Pop, uh, Chili Peppers, Pearl Jam when they've hit, and everybody's played Pink Pop. Everybody, There's been outstanding, wonderful moments where 
you know, Elvis Costello came out and sang with The Clash and just magnificent rock and roll history at Pink Pop. But they had a vote in Holland, the top 10 most memorable moments of Pink Pop and mine is in the top 10 wow. that I I just did made a disaster. So you can Google it and it's fun. So they're coming here tomorrow uh, to film like, oh my God, if you don't die, everything turns out all right. And here he is. Well, you know, we're gonna, we're going to go a lot of places on this one. <laughs> and I can tell you right now, like you're going to have to come back because I feel like I could get up and leave the room and you could just carry the show and, and tell no, no. stories for forever. Um, but I want to go back because so many people know you from the show and, and from the, from your music, but I want to go, I want to go back to your early days and, and talk about where you grew up, what your childhood was like, because um, the, in the brief moments that we met a few weeks back, there was, there's so many stories that you were telling just then. And so why don't we go back a little bit and talk about what that was like? Childhood, I think, I think if if any message Drew or I or any like informed person you guys are trying to get out is that childhood dictates the adult, mm -hmm. right? America doesn't want to believe that, though you see it everywhere. When Lindsay Lohan was cracking up, I go, look at her fucking parents. Are you kidding me? What did you expect? She was going to be Michelle Obama or something? You know what I mean? We're so naive at what childhood trauma and neglect and smothering and divorce and suicide and drug addiction, alcoholism do in creating the adults we have in the society, the next generation. So, so I grew up in a strange family where my parents were much older and my dad was a supermarket person here in Los Angeles. And so we, I grew up in just an incredible privilege and, and luxury, you know, luck, it's just luck, but my parents are way older. And then you, eventually you start being suspicious if you have half a brain. I heard my mom talk about her hysterectomy one time. And then so I went in the, in the dictionary and I looked up what hysterectomy was. And I was like, then I was clever. I was like 10. I asked her, mom, when did you have that operation on, on your private area? And she said, whatever year. And it was before I was born. <laughs> 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 so like, well, what? You got to understand, parents in the 60s were just drunk and fabulous. They didn't really connect the dots in parenting all that well. So she then tells me, this curious little kid, like, when did she ever hysterect me? And it's before I was born. And she didn't even dawn on her like, oh, I wonder if he's suspicious. <laughs> so, so I then started thinking, what the hell? What the hell? And I had these old parents and everywhere I went, I was all. I remember always being embarrassed. People would say, "Is this your grandson?" And I'd be like, "Oh God, why do they say that? It's so embarrassing, right?" Because it was my dad. I loved my dad. You didn't still, want people to feel like he's old, right? Yeah, yeah. I didn't. It just makes you feel uneasy, and you got to understand it's an era where nobody talks about anything, mm -hmm. right? So, um, I'm driving with my mom one day to the supermarket, and I said, "Am I really um, your and dad's son?" And she said, "Well." Actually, Bobby, no, you're adopted, and someday we'll sit down and talk about that, and you'll meet your natural mother. What does that do to your brain? Just like, <laughs> yeah, right? And so I remember where it was. We were just at Coachella this weekend. It was on Miles Avenue. I remember so vividly being in the car with my mother. Because you grew up in the Palm Springs Yeah, area. I grew up okay. in Palm Desert. And so, and you got to understand, back then there was nothing. There was nothing between... Indian Wells Country Club in Indio, there was nothing between Palm Desert and Palm Springs, but El Dorado Country Club, it was like all desert. And so I remember driving with my mom and she was just so, because she wasn't drunk. When she was drunk, she was more guarded and, and kind of uh, flighty. 
But she was just like, yeah, you're adopted and we'll tell you later, you know, we'll, we'll sit down later with you. And so that sit down later was three years later. And at Christmas, when I was 13 years old, they sat down and Christmas Eve, they decided that's a good time to tell me that, you know, and so that from then on, I'm thinking I'm adopted. It makes sense that my parents are old. Then you're wondering who's my dad. And I remember I loved Jerry West, the Lakers basketball player. And I thought, what if Jerry West, my dad, because when you're 10, you don't know. Could like, be anyone. Could be anyone. Uh, Jerry West, right? And so they sit down, they tell me, and they're kind of drunk, and it's Christmas Eve, and they tell me that um, I'm adopted, but they love me, and my dad says, you're my son. And then they say, but Nancy, and Nancy's sitting right there with us, is your actual mo natural mother, my sister. <laughs> oh, <fuck. laughs> look at the look on your face. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a. I just can't imagine what that does to a well, little boy at 13 years old. Yeah, sorry. I'm going to get this weird edamame. <laughs> but, but think of your eyes just went, oh my God. I mean, it. What does that do to you at 13 years old? What, what did you start? I was scared that I was going to have to go live with her, right? That's immediate. I remember that. And then. Um, by this time, we had moved back to L.A. to Like, we always had two houses, one in L.A. and one in Palm Springs. And it turns out they wanted me out in Palm Springs to not embarrass them in Los Angeles until, you know what I mean? And my family was very prideful in L.A. Because pride. your mother, who was your sister up until then... <laughs> Had you out of wedlock, yes? Is that so? That was well. The... She just she was fourteen when she got pregnant. She okay. was fifteen when she had me. She had me at Saint Anne's Home for Unwed Mothers in Echo Park, um, and and then they just took her away from me. And apparently, my sisters told me after my dad died that my dad said, "If it's a girl, it goes up for Catholic adoptions. If it's a boy, we'll keep it." <laughs> oh wow! People didn't fuck around back then. 1961. No. <laughs> it's such a different time. Now everyone's so open about everything. Yeah. It just was really, it's almost uncomfortable. So think about it though. He had made a fortune and he, he had never had a son. He had three daughters and he just wanted a son. And so you can imagine how spoiled I was. Sure. So spoiled, you know, and still am kind of, you know what I mean? That doesn't go away, but there's all this trauma and alcoholism and, and, you know, just dishonesty and secrecy and all this kind of stuff. So what that leads to is my dad kills himself when I'm 15. My mom's an alcoholic. She can't handle me. She moves out. So I lived in our, I lived at home in my house by myself when in my senior year of high school, because <laughs> my mom and my grandma mom and I didn't get along and she just decided I'm moving to the desert. Fuck you. <laughs> I can't deal so with you're you. dead alone and you, it's your senior year of high school. <laughs> yeah, are all the great. girls over at your house? Everybody's over. All the bands are over there. We used to have so much fun. That's where I discovered black beauties and cocaine and drinking. And what is a black beauty? I hear that like mentioned speed. in books. It's, okay. Yeah. And they were they're just cheap pills. You could get them for 50 cents back then, and you get four of them, and you'd be really wired. And we used to open them up. They were black, black capsules, and you could open them up and snort the white powder inside. I read Mackenzie Phillips' book. Oh, she liked them too, yeah. And she talked about when she was really little, like 10, I think she was at Jimi Hendrix's house, <laughs> and she was going through the medicine cabinet, and there was this purple pill. Right. And she and it and she didn't know what it was, so she ate it. And apparently it was like Jimi Hendrix's last purple something. Maybe a black <laughs> purple, beauty. Purple acid, maybe. 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 <laughs> and he freaked out on her. Is that what a right. is that similar to a black no, beauty? 
Blackbooty speed like cocaine Different. or methamphetamine. Okay. But, okay. But Hendrix, you know, he was mostly into hallucinogens, I think. But Maybe it was a hallucinogen. So what are you LSD. doing? What are you doing as a senior at this house? You've got you've got bands there. You've got girls. Like what? what like what is happening? That's when, and it's funny because that's when I really discovered that rock and roll was an actual thing that you could live. It wasn't just something you read about in a magazine or that you went to Anaheim Stadium and saw. Like there was bands around Huntington Beach where we had then eventually settled in. Uh, one called The Crowd, which is still around. That band is still around, The Crowd. Jim Decker and The Crowd, a shout out to them. And uh, a band called The Popsicles and um, a band called The Simple Tones. And so everybody could come to my house and drink and there was no parents there. Imagine that. I was like 17. It was like the greatest thing ever. I would have I mean, hung out with you. <laughs> hey. I mean, we would have probably been right there. I would yeah. have been like, hey, Bob. <laughs> I think there's uh, there's different ways of doing that. There's a lot of inattentive parents here in Beverly Hills and I hear about it a lot, but I had it. It was my house and, and the rent was paid and I got a certain amount of money for going to school. And, you know, I'll tell you things that, parents put into place. My dad's trust and will said, as long as Bobby's in school, he gets a good living, right? Or a livable amount of money. And so that's why I stayed in school for years and years and years. I've been in every college in America. I just kept going to school. Because you were getting paid. (laughs) Instead of paying to go, you were getting paid. I was getting paid. And, And so I did that right up until 1983 when I kind of and now rock and roll had become a thing you could be. You could be a roadie. You could be a sound man. You could be, you know, a manager. You could be these things. They were concrete, and I started seeing them. And then I met people that were in bands, and I thought, how hard can this be? Like, it doesn't seem that hard. They don't seem much different than me. When it's, when it's Robert Plant and Jimmy Page and Mick Jagger and Keith Richards, it just seems like a far-off land and a different Completely world. unattainable. And, and all of a sudden, it's these kids that I know from my neighborhood, like TSOL and bands, you know what I mean? And and then I moved to Hollywood to go to LA City College and I met Anthony and Flea and it's a legendary story where I met Flea a a year before. And for those that are listening, this we're talking about Anthony and and Flea from the Chili Peppers, yes. So I met Flea years before because I had become a DJ. Like DJ was a way you could be around clubs, make money, and and I loved records and I had records since I was a kid. So I was a DJ and Flea came into my DJ booth arguing with me about a song that I had played when he and, and I was like, get this kid out of here. Who the hell is he? Turns out he's only a year younger than me, but he seemed way different because I was we were nineteen and eighteen, but that was a big difference. Big no, when you're in high school, sophisticated feels, Bob Forrest, yeah. the DJ at 19, has gone to school for 800 <laughs> get this years. Kid out of here. <laughs> <laughs> and so then, a couple months later, six months later, um, I had heard about this band called Tony Flow and the Majestic Mayhem's of Funk. Right, they had played at a club, and I wasn't at the show, but everybody said it was amazing. So then couple of weeks after that, I see that kid, Flea, and this friend, and they're pushing this amp down Hollywood Boulevard or something. I was like, where are you guys going? And they had lived at this place they were getting evicted from. And I said, oh, I have a place you can stay at my house. Because I was just, re- I kept recreating Huntington Beach when I was 17. My house has always been the crash pad and the party pad. And I'm always able to, like you, I'm always the guy that can figure out how to get the rent paid. <laughs> <laughs> That's, that's a good description. <laughs> right? Why do you think I married him? <laughs> there you go. There's another reason, but we won't go there right now. Right. 
I'm sure. Well, those things sometimes go hand in glove. Uh-huh. <laughs> this is a good There's some big dick energy in this room. There's... Taylor, I don't know about you, but... <laughs> <laughs> so right. they're just wheeling an amp down the road. Yeah, and I Anthony said, oh, Kiedis can... and Flea, and you just look over and say, "What the fuck yeah, are you guys they, up to?" They, they they really had an energy to them, and they were fun. And I'd heard what they were doing, and and I just thought, yeah. And other bands had stayed at my house. A band called Bad Brains. I don't sure. know if you know that band. <laughs> my, Chuck Dukowski from Black Flag lived in my house. Like everybody, I'm gonna have a fucking like, orgasm. My house was the place to go. It, right, and I had all these great records, and what you're I, describing are what my dreams look like. Oh, really? Yeah, of course. So you kind of had celebrity rehab before it was celebrity <laughs> rehab. It was like prehab. Yeah, <laughs> it was celebrity partyville, and it, and it just continued my whole life until I got sober, really. And even after I got sober, um, I was just telling Michael before. I used to live up off Kings Road here, right by the riot house, and um, that was the spot of all spots of all time. And it's kind of legendary. You can Google a film called Stuff by Johnny Depp Taylor, right can now. Taylor, can you pull the, our Google up so that when we're talking, you can pull this stuff up? Taylor, yeah, it. it's called, we made a movie of, because we were living this, like what everybody wants to live if you can, buy all the drugs you can, do whatever you want, just like... All the movie's the, called Stuff. Yeah, I want to watch it stuff. tonight. Yeah, it's only five. It's only six minutes. We didn't have a he's long attention pull, oh. span. He's going to pull it up here. <laughs> so... We we lived in this house and we you know we were John Fashante was the most successful but Johnny Depp was pretty successful not like how he is now or whatever but and me and Gibby Haynes from the Butthole Surface and we kind of lived there and we just kind of it was like what we thought the Rolling Stones when they met made Exile on Main Street I don't know if you know the legend of it but Keith Richards rented this house in the South France and they all lived there and they did drugs and they made this album called Exile on Main Street wow. so we tried to recreate it without making a record <laughs> just the drugs and the girls and the drinking <laughs> so at this point do you guys all look up to the Rolling Stones is that who there's there's Jimmy Page and Keith Richards are kind of like the role models for that wild excess living David Bowie a little bit, but by the time we're imitating what we had read about when we were kids, David Bowie's like this articulate, handsome, distinguished guy. He's got his act together. Yeah. It's kind of, it was Keith Richards and Jimmy Page, right? There's that great, there's that great quote. You've probably heard it a million times with Keith Richards. He says, I never had a problem with drugs. I had a problem with the the law. Police. (laughs) I love that quote. So at this time though, did you have your band or was this? Yeah, it's all, we have a band. We all have bands and, and the Chili Peppers started. And then, and then, um, I was their road manager and I wasn't a very good road manager and, and I got demoted to roadie and then, um, and then I got fired by my two best friends. You gotta like you gotta work really hard to get fired by your two best friends. Hold on, what does road manager entail? Like, what's road the job? Like, you get all the equipment, you get in the van. Like their first tour, I drove all the equipment to Detroit for the first show, and I get the money and I orchestrate everything and whatever. But I, I soon was incapable of doing that. So then they hired a road manager. I became the roadie that just sets up the stuff and you know puts strings on the bass or guitar. And what was your drug of choice at this time? It's always uh, cocaine and heroin, always. 
Mixing it together. Mixing it together. When I watch your documentary, I thought it was really interesting that you were somebody like your goal was to shoot heroin. Right. <laughs> From right is that is that it. accurate? Like well, you were yeah. you like you were like driven. It wasn't like you progressed to heroin. It's like you were look you were you knew that you I wanted, wanted to. I wanted the ultimate adventure and everything you read about heroin or know about rock and roll. It's not just rock and roll that influenced me, it's Rumbo and Baudelaire and and William Burroughs. And so it's in literature, it's in on the road, it's in it's in movies, it's it's in our culture that the most daring, the most outlaw, the people that push the envelope all the way, that go to the edge, heroin is the drug of choice. Billie Holiday, Charlie Parker. And so I wanted that experience. And why I wanted that experience, I think through therapy, I've gone back and looked at it, is like when you're abandoned by the only person you think loves you, which is my dad, you got to run. That's what I think. You just need to run, right? You can't sit with that abandonment. You need to keep moving. And so I just kept running. I also think, and just coming from a chaotic childhood too, I think, and I'm starting to notice this as I get older, when you are grown, when you grow up in chaos, you constantly look for it. I feel It's like an addiction. That's an interesting Yes, I feel common. No, and I'm noticing the more people I talk to that have had similarities, that's the same thing. It's like you want like something so chaotic because the normalcy and the security is not what you're used to. Right. Or logic. And then, and then as if you're lucky enough to have success in life, it just gets weirder. Right. When I, I always say what held us all in check really was the lack of, of, of achieving our goals. Once we achieved our goals, like living on King's road, all bets were off. Like it was, it was madness. You can look at the movie. It was madness. Can we watch the movie really quick just so we can see? It's six minutes. <laughs> so it's just a, it's just a document of how we were living. So when, but what a lot of people don't realize too about, about you, I know this because I love, I love the music and the, and the genres that you guys were in for a long time. I was a student, I'm probably a student of it. Is that Thelonious Monster, you got, it's not like you guys were some small band. Like you were a oh, known band. Big. You were playing in front of massive crowds and you were very well respected in Hollywood. That was the thing is respect. So, so no one could predict what was going to happen in 92. We're going back to 86, 87, 88. Everybody was about the same. We were all friends. It was a friendly, I always say it was a friendly competition that I don't know. I think the closest thing to it is like hip hop maybe. Because you work together, but you're also in competition with each other. You, you know what I mean? We were all very supportive of each other. You know what it sounds like exactly? Which what? is so interesting. Have you heard about all the YouTubers that grew yeah, up on Vine Jake, Street? They yeah, all grew Jake, up on Vine Street. I know Street. them all. Jake it's and like Logan. The same exact parallel. They all grew up in the same area. No one could predict what's obviously now happened. Yeah, I know. And that's what, and like, like us, two generations before, they weren't prepared for the success they were about to have. Well, there's so many things that come into play, right? Ego, uh, you know, money, m- more followers. Now it's it's just it's the yeah. same, but people parallel. you maybe people may be rewarding you for maybe poor behavior, right? And saying right. like like what normal people would not be able to get away with. Well, nobody. You being celebrated I, I for. just know from the Paul brothers, nobody can tell them how to behave. Sure. I mean, who's going to tell them? They get paid for misbehaving. That's exactly right. Yeah. And so no one could tell Perry or me or Anthony or how to behave. Fuck you. You're fired. They can't tell me. So we ended up with managers that did drugs with us and everything was cool. So then that just supports the whole craziness, right? If your manager is snorting coke with you, like who's, who's, who's managing the manager? (laughs) 
Yeah. Right. And so, so it was, I, I just say it all hell broke loose and it was lucky we survived and a couple people didn't, but for the most part, everybody did. And that's what I'm scared for your guys' generation because people aren't surviving, right? There's more, I've, I've seen more millennial deaths in five years than I had in 30 years of, of Gen Xers. And why do you, do you think, think that is? do you think that's social media that you're just, we have more access to the media now? Well, the numbers say more are dying, but I, I just go by, you know, it's every six months. It's little peep. That kid was a genius. That kid was yeah. a genius. Right. What my fear is, it's going to be Billie Eilish. Like it's just one after another, after another, after another. And it's all about, I believe no love. There's a lot of talk about love, but there's not a lot of love. There's a lot of love that that I would do anything for the, that 20, 30 group of friends of mine and have, right? And we we didn't have our parents to depend on. This another millennial thing I love touching on. There was no way you could go back to my mother and say, I fucked up, mom. I took drugs. Can you help me? She would have said, get out of my face and slam the door in my face, right? So you wouldn't even go there. You had to be humble and turn to your friends. You had to ask for help from people that that you didn't have these strings attached, like like parents, right? And I always say, where are your friends? How come you're not sleeping on your friend's couch? Why, as soon as you become homeless, you call your mom? You've been telling her to fuck off for two years. Now, all of a sudden, she, oh, mom, I'm on heroin. I need to go to rehab. You know what I mean? There's a weird connection between millennials and their parents. And I, I don't think we've even scratched the surface of what is wrong with it, right? Because I, as a millennial parent, I'm also a parent of a millennial. I'm married to a millennial and the parent of a millennial. I'm surrounded by millennials, right? That's all I deal with. And one of the things that's interesting is as a m millennial parent, if your child becomes distressed if you do the traditional thing for generation after generation of parenting, you're 30 years old. It's not my fucking problem. I'm sorry. You made a bunch of poor decisions. You're going to have to live with them. That, that now, if you say that as a parent, you're a bad parent. You're a bad person. How could you do that to your own child? So right? what's the medium there? I feel like there's a happy medium in between both the two. Well, I, I try or to a medium, help maybe not happy, but maybe a medium. I try to help parents and I base it on my own experience. Like my parents paid my rent, right? So you can figure out your own life. You don't want to live with our values. You don't want to live the way we think you should live. You don't, you want to do your drugs and craziness. We will pay your rent, but don't ever call us for money or this or that or the other thing, right? And I do that with parents nowadays. And that begins a child's like you can't just spend yourself broke and go over to your parents house to eat you have to figure out how to problem solve just everyday problem solving woo more play guys this is a game changer if you guys haven't tried coconut oil lube woo you are missing out let me tell you i personally can't have sex without it i mean we've been talking about forever you can also use it alone if you want to which is fun so basically woo you can eat it lick it suck it fuck it you get your healthy fats in while you give a blowjob and it just works it has beeswax for grip little stevia for taste some vanilla essence for smell it's really just everything you need when you're having sex and it's not like i'm saying you need it it just enhances the situation you know what i mean 
I was going to come in and add to that, but I I'm might have sure to, I'm, I'm overheating in. right now. I might have to leave the room. You were going to come in real quick. Yeah, Jesus Christ. Guys, if we didn't believe in this product and didn't love it as much as we do, one, we wouldn't have created it. And two, we wouldn't give it to every single guest that comes on this show in bright, skinny, confidential wrapping paper. And let me tell you, every guest gets a huge smile on their face when they get it. And then they always will message me via DM or on text and say, whoa. That's a unique gift, isn't it? lube, right? And you know what? What, what, what else are you going to give? Water. Yeah, we have water here. You know, we also have coconut lube and it's the best. Yes. So this is a great gift for a birthday, a bachelorette party, just to send your boyfriend. Maybe you guys have like a long distance relationship or just bring it home. I'm telling you, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your husband, whatever, they're going to be obsessed. It's the gift that keeps on giving. Yes, it is. Guys, to try this out, go to woomoreplay.com and enter promo code SKINNY20 at checkout. That's woomoreplay, W-O-O-M-O-R-E-P-L-A-Y.com and then code SKINNY20 at checkout for 20% off your entire order. Check out the freshies as well. A lot of fun stuff happening over at the Woo brand. Enjoy, guys. We know that you will. What I find so interesting about, well, there's a million things I find interesting, but what I find interesting about your story is that a lot of people that are on drugs have a very poor relationship looking back about their, you know, their time on drugs, right? It's a, it's a dark time, but for you, like... It was fun. Yeah. That's, <laughs> I don't know a, what those people are talking about. Honestly, it sounds kind of fun. You're living on King's Road. All your friends are with you. You're, you're hanging playing out with Guns music. and Roses, the Chili Peppers. You're hanging out with Jane's Addiction. You're in a band. Like, yeah. Not a lot of people have that experience. I think that's very unique. But we were just all, if you take the music away, we were still friends. We Now a lot of us don't play music and are still friends. Sure. Tomorrow night I'm going to Gibby from the Butthole Surfers book signing party. And then he and his wife and kid and my, me and my wife and kids are going to Universal Studios because everybody's, the boys are obsessed with Harry Potter. Like friendship doesn't end just because you don't, you know, in a band anymore. But I think that a lot of, Millennial relationships are transactional. You just leave them behind, right? I see. I know what you're saying. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's, they're not. They're not these deep bonds. Right? I'm, I'm friends with these guys t- unto death. It is different now, right? It's so, very flighty. It's like a short attention span. Right, and and it's the the social media component of it. What if one of my friends gets attacked or gets in a me tooed? Am I not their friend anymore? Is the people going to come after me and kill me if I don't say he's a horrible person? That just can't happen to Gen Xers and baby boomers. You don't see it happening, but it happens to millennials all the time. You say a misstep, like the like the kid the other day on YouTube, like they're fighting. Remember the quarrel? I st- I read everything I could about that because I'm fascinated with this generation. I still couldn't understand why everybody unfriended him. He's talking about James Charles. Yeah, and yeah, ta- yeah. Ta- what ta- the hell is at the bottom of all that? Why did 11 million people turn their back on that kid? I think that that the the initial reason was that they were friends and he supported another hair care company and she Who has a hair fucking cares if that's your friend. I, I agree with you and then but then <laughs> this is the problem this is the problem apparently he was doing he was doing sexual harassment to to young men 
I don't know the whole story. That's just what I I don't know the story. That's what I gathered from my secret I do know we're living in a time where people are looking for... It's very transactional. They're friends because they're making money together. They need each other. They bullshit the audience to believe they're friends and they have all this bullshit going on. That's one thing for a generation that believes in Valhalla and perfection and just society. You guys live in lies every fucking day of who you are to each other, right? And just bullshit on top of bullshit. And I, you know, and then, it's, it's interesting. I, I, and I don't mean every millennial, but in general, like there's a lot of lying get ex- going on. I get what you're saying. I feel like we've had the benefit and the the non-benefit. Like we're on the cusp, right? Because a lot, when I think back on like my childhood friends and Taylor, our producer who you met, he, I've known him since we were 12 years old. And I have those friends. Where it's and like, you're it's married to someone that you've known since you were 12. But yeah. there are some relationships that are, that are for sure not nearly as stable. And I think when I think back to those relationships, it's like, pre-cell phone we were all running around together getting into trouble together there was no we weren't connected on every level it's just like when you see you see it and it was you're building a lot of experiences together and i don't i think maybe one of the issues is that people aren't having as many real ex- life experiences together it's like they're connected to the phone which is very real but there's not these deep bonds where they're actually like getting into some shit together does well, that make sense this like is also ODing and having to resuscitate your friend well that is an extreme experience bob <laughs> Um, I've done that to everyone we've met. <laughs> I want to, I want to talk to you though about oh, when shit. when this does start to get dark for you. Like when it's it, dark when uh, when some of us went so far. Like like there was a couple of us that were way out on the edge, like of insanity, and and a lot of our friends were still trying to be a part of our lives and engage with us. And it was very disjointed and very disconnected. And so I think a lot of the people kind of gave in to just be with us for a couple of days and live the way we live. And one of them died. And, and that woke me up. That was like, because the person who died wasn't even a drug addict. They were just hanging out. Right. Because, and and it was shocking and it kind of was, it was like, it was, it reverberated for a long time with all of us. And, and it, it a lot of people say, cause it was involved fame and it's in my book, of course, and it's River Phoenix and, but, and I hate the gossipy component of that, but more than that, more than this famous person died, he was not a drug addict. Did he get labeled I, as one after? Oh God! Yeah, of course. I mean, come on, right? You can't, you can't do movie after movie and be a drug addict the way we were. We weren't doing much. <laughs> we were going to. We, eventually, we couldn't even go to the store. You just get pink dot, <laughs> waiting for the pink dot guy to come by, right? And and going to the Viper Room like at twelve o'clock just to have somewhere to go for an hour. And because you guys were so well known, people were coming up to you that you couldn't go anywhere. No, no we just don't drugs. Because so fucked we up. We were just so fucked up. We couldn't leave. You get, you don't even know what, I didn't even know what year it was. I think in 93, 94. I don't think, I don't think I crossed over New Year's 93, 94. So when that happened with R- River, what did that do to you? What's the switch that turned? It just shocked me that he just wasn't like us and he was the casualty, Right. Um, and people argue that point. Well, if you're doing those kind of drugs, when you're when you're a true addict, what's called a real alcoholic, according to addiction, when you really got it, where you'll die for it, you know it. And then everyone else, you you can you know whether they are or aren't, right? And 
for instance, I could have I could have had a much longer music career if I could have cleaned up to go on tour or clean up to make a record. I just couldn't do that. It was incomprehensible. River was doing that every every time he went and made a movie. So I read Anthony Kiedis' star, Scar Tissue. I told you this on your yeah. podcast. And in it, he seems like he was a gnarly he addict. Was all the way. How did he, how did they still become successful when he was so gnarly? Well, there was, you got to look at the gaps. When you're that big of a band, you can have big gaps in between albums. I okay. Think there's, I think there's a four-year gap between... Blood Sugar, Sex Magic, and um, uh, One Hot Minute. I think there's a huge gap there. And, but I mean, that, that another thing about Anthony, so he does eventually get sober again. He was sober in the 80s and then he gets sober again. And I asked him one time, like, you know, when you've got unlimited resources and you're that far gone, like he became gone in the mid 90s, right? John and I were gone in the earlier 90s. Like living at, at Skid Row, under yeah, yeah. actually under a bridge. Well, I, yeah. The, the, well, there's a, he had a house in Beechwood, but when you're down there, you really don't want to leave. <laughs> you want to be close to the supply. You, know you got to come back. <laughs> I know that insanity. No, it's, it's time management. <laughs> it's time management. I'm all about my time, so I get it. Can you imagine? I'm going to, you know, it's rush hour right now. Just hang here for a few hours. And then that few hours carries on. And then it's nighttime. And then no reason to go home. And then he, but he was staying in motels down there too. Cause I used to go chase him around. I know. What do you mean you used to chase him around? You're, so well, we you're on drugs. scared and... when we hadn't heard from him for four or five days. I'm sober by this time. Oh, you're sober by this time. Scared. Okay. Yeah, 96. We're going to have to jump around yeah, here. Yeah, we're going to have to jump around. No, but I mean, there's general yeah, there's... areas of, of uh, I only know years by album releases. Okay. <laughs> like, like my first record came out in 1986, second in 87, third in 88, and then all hell breaks loose. <laughs> I know, obviously, October of 93 when River died. I know, I know 96 when I get sober and... Um, and I have two years sobriety more than Anthony. So there was that two year period of 96 to 98. Why did you decide to get sober? Well, everybody asked that. And, and I, you know, a lot of times you're just trying to figure mysteries out so that people can hope to have a mystery happen to them. I think it's cumulative. I think that things kind of start to add up. One thing that, that, beyond all this ridiculousness, in my waking moments where I really knew who I was and what I was doing, the loss of my career wasn't the thing I was crying about or worried about or I focused on too much or or loss of a marriage or losing a home. It was my son. I had a child who was, you know, eight years old when I got sober. He was, you know, five years old when I was in rehab. He used to come and visit me in rehabs. And it was just awful. And it just wears away at you. And I'd purposely stay away from him because I didn't want him to, you know, I thought the better if I stay away, the more I stayed away, the worse I felt about all this. And just the guilt of that, the, and then all the other things like, you know what I mean? I remember one time, because I didn't see the grunge era come. I kind of knew the grunge era people like, uh, like Eddie Vedder, I knew, but 
but I didn't really know about it. I heard about it, but I was living in this drug haze for, you know, for so long. And I was at this drug dealer's house and MTV was on. A lot of times that there was this thing called MTV that played music all the time. Do you guys know it wasn't a reality TV show station? So it was always on at drug dealer's houses, 24 hours a day. Like, and so I was sitting there and I was smoking crack in this drug dealer's house in Hollywood. And I was looking at the TV and I knew it was one of these new grunge bands that I was hearing all about. This is probably 94, 95. And I looked at the couch and it was the two guys that were on the TV. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I kept looking at the TV and then looking at the two guys that were doing buying drugs. And I was like, oh my God. And then I pointed out one of them. I went, oh my God. And he, he just like looked at me really weird. He didn't have much of a sense of humor. Do you remember who, who it was? It was Lane Staley. <laughs> he didn't have much of a sense of humor. Though later in life he did. Um, <laughs> but, you know, they had that man in the box song, I guess is what it probably was. And I just remember like, there's a new gang in town. There's a new, you've been replaced. And, and in that moment, I knew he was going to replace me on the couch. I was going to die. And then he would be on the couch. Smoking crack at the drug wow, house. that's like Inception sort that's of. That's what happened. You could like see it all. I saw it all in that moment. So it's like almost a new generation of drug addicts. You saw and you realized it's either time for me to get sober or I'm going to die. Well, then a magical, the mystery and magicalness of it all happened. So a couple days later, this beautiful girl comes by. Right, I pay attention. Still, I'm a human being. <laughs> I'm like, and then the. And then she leaves and she cops some dope and she left. And I, as I, I said to the drug dealer, Frenchie, who's still my friend to this day, I said, dude, who's that chick? And he goes, oh, that's Lane Staley's um, girlfriend. And I was like, holy shit. I shouldn't have quit music. <laughs> God damn it. So, I had tremendous regret about my career for one moment. So how do you... So when you're this deep into it, I mean, because like, I mean, people can go and I think that everyone should go and watch your documentary because you could see. But when you're this deep into drugs, how do you actually get off? Like, how do you start to sober up? How do you, what does the process look well, like? Well, guess I mean, it's what, a long I'm going to tell you. Sure. The girl comes back the next couple days later and then there's some other drug addicts there. And I said hello to the girl and whatever. And she seemed to know me. I was kind of a knowable person. Uh, though not much of a humanoid. And then she left. And I, I said, who is that girl? And the guy said, oh, that's Lane's girlfriend's friend, Max. And I was like, it's not Lane's, the guy's the singer's girlfriend? And he said, no, that's his, her, his girlfriend's friend. She cops for them, right? And I was like, oh. And then the next time she came, I had some money that Courtney Love had given me to buy her dope, and I kind of ripped her off. <laughs> I'd seen Courtney at a club and she goes here and she gave me 500 bucks to go get dope. And that me and she said, I'm staying at the Roosevelt, like meet me there. And then I get to the drug house and that Max girl was there and I was buying $500 worth of drugs, like a big shot. And I said, Hey, do you want to go? And then I knew that she, they were intravenous drug users and I wasn't anymore after a friend of mine had died named Halal. I had stopped shooting drugs. And I said, will you shoot me up? Because I haven't shot up in a long time. And we went in the bathroom at the drug dealer's house and she shot me up and we fell in love and we were together for 11 years. And she got sober and then she had a profound effect. She believed in me when no one else did. I believe in the power of people, loving and influencing people. She's the reason why I played music again. There's magical people coming to your life. It doesn't have to be a romantic relationship like that. It can be a counselor. It can be somebody in 12-step world. It can be a therapist. It can be a, a sober friend, a friend that got sober before you. 
people. That's what changes. And that's what's so hard for millennials because you don't really experience each other, right? You experience each other through a phone. But to know that, that I was just so mesmerized by her and she was, she saved me. I'd be dead if it wasn't for her. That you can't plan out, but that you can believe in that people love kind of, you know, just little things happen along the way where I was discouraged when I was about four months sober and Chili Peppers were playing the forum and I went and I was sitting there and I was just bummed out and I'm working in a restaurant and what am I being sober for? And, and Joe Strummer, my idol, this guy from The Clash, went over and, and was, said something to Max and then we were leaving and, and I said, what did Joe Strummer say to you? Because I thought he might be hitting on her. <laughs> like, and he, she goes, I'll tell you in the car. It was really beautiful. And... And because I had been talking to him, but not like, you know, heavy stuff. And so we get in the car and she goes, Joe said he could see how sad you were and to look out for you because you were the real talent in the room. Wow. wow. That's, pretty That's a human experience. Like every rock star in Los Angeles was in that room. He knew to say that because he could see the life force come like drifting out of me. Right. You have to be attuned to each other. You have to love. You have to say those things that mean something. I'm a big believer in the human condition and sharing it with each other. And phones and technology, and I'm sorry, social media don't do that. It's so funny that you say that because this morning I made you put away your phone and I said, can you just have coffee with me for five minutes without your phone? See, and we did. Right. Oh, it was like pulling teeth, though. Now, I'm not a saint here. I'm just a, I'm like Lenny Bruce. I'm just saying what I think. I'm not, I don't have solutions and I don't, and it's not like I'm not guilty. The other night, I swear to God, we were sitting at the dining room table because I'm big, got to sit down at the goddamn dining room table once in a while and all four of us eat, right? <laughs> and so we're sitting there and eventually I have a two-year-old daughter and she's just a maniac. You have to put Peppa Pig in front of her to stop her from, you know, jumping off the table top. And then my son's whining, why does she get it? Why does she get her phone? And then he gets his phone and he's got his headphones and he's watching YouTube, but probably the Paul brothers. And then, and then eventually my wife got on her phone. So that gave me permission to get on my phone. And we were all four sitting at dinner on four phones. <laughs> <laughs> it was like a Rockwell painting with phones. That'll be the, 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 the classic paintings later in life and just be like everybody on phones. So, and so, I mean, listen, we've had, there's been two people we've had on this show, Alexis and also Khalil. And both yeah. of them have been, I mean, praise you. Khalil attributes you a lot with basically almost saving his life. I know he had a right. lot of work to do himself, but w when did you start helping people and how did you get into this line of work and when did you meet Drew and like, how did this whole life of you, I mean, you've really helped a lot of people at this point. Well, I mean, they helped me too. That's the thing that, that why I say transactional. It's not like I help people so that everybody praises me as the helper. It's fun. You it's made it fun your, helping your life. people. It's fun helping people, Khalil especially. Alexis, I felt like I had to protect because I could see the, I do protect people from the predators of the recovery industry. It's one of the most hideous industries I've ever seen. What do you, what do you mean? They exploit celebrities and give them free treatment and then try to use them as marketing people. And, and it's just disgusting. It's like you had cancer and your cancer doctor asked you to do an advertisement for him on YouTube. 
<laughs> Look at your eyes. <laughs> I mean, I just can't believe that. She, so that was happening. I felt protective of her. Even before Evan, Evan was kind of dating her, I just felt like somebody's got to look out for that girl. You know, she could really be taking the wrong direction. So, and and then she has a friend named Tess, and that's where Alexis and I got really close is trying to help Tess. And I have a different way of helping people. You don't kidnap them or bully them. You just kind of love them, right? And so... That was my Alexis story. The Khalil story was, he just was like this gnat. He just wouldn't go away. <laughs> he really was so persistent in wanting to know what we knew, sober people. He really sought it out. And he didn't really practice it, but he wanted to know what it was, right? So I got him into this treatment center, and then I was helping him through. And then he was scholarshiped, and he just kept living there for like two and a half months. And finally, they were telling me, because I got him in there, Pasadena Recovery Center, you got to get rid of this guy. He can't just live here forever for free. And I had to go to him like, dude, you're going to have to move along to sober living. And he goes, no, no, I can't. I can't. No, if I leave this building, I'll use. And if I use, I'll die. And I said, well, I don't know about all that, <laughs> but you are leaving on Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, and he would always ask questions. Very, very curious about how to become sober how to how does it work how do you not use so when that when you have someone like that in your life it's really interesting they're not fighting and resisting they're curious and and wanting for information so he was wanting he knew about sober living he's also like a con artist know-it-all too so he knew the good sober livings right he knew Genesis House in in, in uh, Century City, and I forget what this Asher guy had a Beverly Hills one. He knew the ones, and I was taking him to one that I got him a scholarship at, and he's like, where are we going? And I go, don't you worry about where we're going. He goes, we're not going out to one of those shitholes in the valley, are we? And I go, don't you worry about where we're going. Because he, you know, he, he always wants to be in the limelight and stuff. And he knew if it's a scholarship, it's probably not at the nicest sober living. So, and he kept saying, where are we going? Where are we going? And I wouldn't tell him for, you know, the day before, and then we're driving to go to it. And I go, we're going somewhere. I got to stop and see a friend. And then, and then I'll take you to the sober living. So I took him to my friend Halal's grave. I don't know if he told that story. No. I took him to Halal's grave and I said, that motherfucker eight feet down under there has everything that you think you want. He was in one of the biggest bands in the world. He was famous, girls liked him, he had a nice house and a nice life, and everything that you think you need to feel whole so you don't do drugs, that guy right down there had it. And he just sat there, because he, he loves the chili peppers. He won't admit it, but, I mean, he knew who it was. And I said, so we're going to whatever fucking sober living will take you. And he didn't say a word. <laughs> he just got in the car. And I took him to this really hardcore, like no fucking around sober living in Northridge. Uh, talk to me about what a really hardcore sober living looks like. I want to know like specifics. Are you okay. on your knees with a toothbrush cleaning yeah. a toilet? Well, not, you you got to clean the toilet. If toilet, if you got scrub, if you've got bathroom scrub, you got to clean the toilet. That's the one they always point out. But uh, Xander, who was in the only sponsor, he went to the same sober living. He always tells this story. Uh, where he he had sweep the kitchen duty, right? And the tech, the person managing the house, um, was over his shoulder going, what the fuck kind of sweeping is that? Screaming at him like, you lazy white boy, what the fuck is wrong with you? Sweep, scrub that floor. Like, like you know, and there was no, no, uh, no special treatment. 
right? And kind of it, like the, the bed's military. uncomfortable, I would assume. Tiny single beds that cost $89 at Kmart or Walmart or something. So it's shitty. It's shitty situation. But magical things can happen. Both Xander and Khalil got sober there. Yeah. Well, because somebody needs to break their entitlement and arrogance down and humble them and all that kind of stuff. Around this time, so maybe I should back up a little bit. Were you working with Drew at this point or had you met Drew or was this? I've always known Drew since before even Anthony and Flea. Well, right around when I met Anthony and Flea when I was about 18, 19, 20. You used to go on his radio show, right? Yeah, that was after, but he was just a music fan. And the, the radio station K Rock that now is this monstrous you know, institution in LA was really just this little tiny studio in Pasadena. And me and my friends from Huntington Beach realized you could just go there. You could just walk into the studio, especially if you brought a six pack of beer, they would let you hang out in the K-Rock studio. So we used to do that on the weekends, especially if bands were playing in Pasadena. We you could go by the studio and Freddie Snakeskin, the program director, DJ, or, or I think Jed the Fish was there, Rodney Bingenheim was there. You could just hang out there in the studio while they're doing the show. So I recognized Drew from being there. Like he's this like nerdy guy that didn't fit in. <laughs> and probably didn't do drugs. <laughs> oh no, he did not. <laughs> but but I remember him being there. And then what happened was K-Rock got in trouble for saying the F word over and over again. They didn't have a delay button. So the FCC fined them a bunch of money and they didn't have it. So then they countered with this thing of what if we had a public service show could you could, would that be all right because we're going to bankrupt us we'll have to close the show you know we'll have to stop our network we can't pay a hundred thousand dollar fine or whatever and that is it was called call the doc and freddie snakes who ran the studio knew that dr drew was a doctor in residency and said hey we're gonna have a radio show and you're just gonna take doctor calls and that's how Drew's radio's career started, from being a fan of, like, the Smiths and and hanging out at the K-Rock radio studio. He was great when he came on here. I mean, yeah, talk about a great. radio person. He, he just comm- do it. He commands, the, he just grabs a mic, throws it around. I mean, he's good. He's good at it. I heard that the way that you got into celebrity rehab was, like, a wild story. Right. Well, how, how we started it? Yeah. Well, Drew had been having offers to do it and and it's another thing like when things happen everybody there's an event that you you you've read all three books now right um oh well flea's book is coming out yeah, yeah. in what's like, it called like acid for the acid children for the children yeah. i just talked to him yesterday about it because uh you have to clear things about other people and i said he said are you gonna sue me and i was like no of course not and he's like you know i just had to check because i don't want to you should have said him. you'll never know you never know it depends yeah. on what mood i'm in <laughs> when anthony said i had sex with a transgender gal in cleveland <laughs> i it was not i was upset but i didn't sue um so yeah, there's three books now there's three truths out of one event. So that is the day Flea quits drugs and moves out of our apartment. And my, and my interpretation was Flea wasn't a drug addict like me and Anthony. I mean, he liked doing drugs, but he also liked playing bass and like going outside. Me and Anthony, not too much interested. <laughs> he was just kind of hanging with you guys, huh? He would, yeah, but he would do drugs, but we all lived together. And then, but you know, he would go visit people and go play music and stuff. And we were just in the house shooting speed at the time. And so in my opinion, he came out of the bedroom one morning and he had shaved his head and he put a minor thread on straight edge and he slammed around the living room, knocked everything over. And he said, I'm, I'm moving out. I'm going straight. 
And you know what I mean? I'm not going to do drugs anymore or something. And then he moved away, moved back to his mom's house. And me and Anthony lived there until we got evicted. But Anthony's book, it says that Anthony told him that you're not like me and Bob. You should save yourself and move back with your mother. Like in my, my thing, <laughs> like that's not what happened. He just was. Anthony's the hero in his story. <laughs> then I tell Flea about this when he's writing his, his book and he goes, that's not what happened. Neither one of those things. You guys are so fucked up. You don't even know what happens in your own lives. <laughs> You guys are all the heroes in your own mind. That's so funny. Each of you thought you were the hero. I wonder who the real hero was. I think we just hit hit a wall. We probably moved out at the same time. I don't even know if it's real what happened. So how does all the, the, I mean, celebrity rehab. So the Drew celebrity rehab thing, everybody's got a different story because it's this pivotal moment. Like, how did it happen? How did it happen? My thing was... Because I come from this culture of Viper Room and music and rolling, you know, whatever we want to call it, fame or whatever. Sure. And all my friends are that. And I have a bunch of actor friends like that. And that, But this new fame that Lindsay Lohan and Britney Spears and to a lesser extent, I forget, some, some other people, I just felt like it's so vicious and awful. Like they're just drug addicts. They're just kids. They're just fuck ups. They're just... I think it's just because it's all because of social media. It's just the mediums. Well, this changed. is kind of before that. This though. is TMZ, twenty-four hour news, twenty-four hour news. But it all of a sudden became okay to insult children and have them be the punchline of things when they're shaving their head and obviously floridly psychotic, and they're and they're getting arrested and crashing their cars and ODing and like to make fun of it, like Jay Leno and David Letterman did. I just found it so repulsive. I rem- and it was no one did that kind of thing before. It was thought of like you don't you don't attack little kids. They're fucking twenty years old. But so one night I saw Jay Leno, who I hate, who I think is unfunny. I've never liked him. And two of his bits in his opening monologue on the Tonight Show were at those two girls at Paris Hilton. One at Paris Hilton. One at, at Lindsay Lohan. And I just felt like fuck you. Fuck you. So I went into work and I said, Drew, we've got to do a TV show about drug addiction and and just film what we do. Film how courageous people are to get off of drugs and how hard it is and and get on television their sexual abuse from childhood so that America can fucking know because they obviously are too stupid to realize these are not choices these girls are making, Right. And he goes, it's funny that you say that because, you know, people want me to do a TV show about rehab. And I always thought you wouldn't want to do it because of AA or because of rehab. And I was like, no, let's do it. And then that me getting on board and then BH1 saying, if you do it as the surreal life, we'll do it. Where does Shelly come into this? Shelly was my Shelly was my ex from the old days. Oh, I didn't know that. yeah, Yeah. And. And, um, and she had gotten sober before me and she got married and had a kid and the kid was now going to school and she came to me and she, and at, at a, at a AA meeting and she said, cause I was working for Drew and she said, you know, I'm thinking of going back to school and becoming a psychologist. And I was like, that'd be good. And she goes, do you think 
you think you could get me supervised at Las Encinas? Because she always does things a thousand percent organized. I don't know if you can tell that about her. This is a year before she's completed her education. She's already making sure she's got her supervisions. <laughs> you know what I mean? Are you That's, like that? No, my husband's bit? like that. Yeah, I can tell. You yeah. know what I mean? Why would you? Why would you? I'm not more set like, up? let's go with the flow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm, and me, I'm like you. Yeah, I'm like sure. And so she does it. And she goes back to school and then she calls me and it's right at the time we're trying to cast the nurse for the show. And they have all these nurses and they're not very funny on, not very cool. And they would not work and they don't talk, you know, so it's either a nurse who can't talk because they're nervous about being on camera or a actress who's saying she's a nurse who looks phony. And so Shelly asked me again, I, you know, I got to start talking to you about this supervision. I went, how do you feel about television? How do you feel about reality television? And she's like, what? And I go, I got an idea. We'll give you a job at Los Encinas if you'll be on our TV show. And I promised her that before even Irwin Entertainment saw her or Dr. Drew saw her or anything. Because I knew she's so cool and charismatic and funny, and right? And so I knew as soon as they meet her, they're going to say, that's the girl. That's that's what's called. She was. It was the perfect trifecta yeah. between you, her, and Drew. She's television gold. Well, yeah. she somebody had to be the bad guy. I knew I wasn't going to because I'm incapable of it, and I knew that Drew had to be the hero. So how does the hero be the bad guy? See, I've been around entertainment my whole life. I know we need that person that that people can focus their their hatred towards like you know what i mean yeah because it wasn't going to be me i felt like drew's going to be the good guy hero that means i got to be the bad cop i don't play bad cop good we got to get a bad cop we got to get a nurse ratchet out of you know all what I, mean? I, I, I love nurture <laughs> nurse ratchet i love that's a great that's a great analogy okay so out of all the celebrities that you helped who was your favorite and who was your least favorite and I'm really hoping that you're going to say that Janice Dickinson was your favorite. She, Oh, she's great. But I don't know that I was able to help her. <laughs> I love her. She's wild. She is no bullshit. Yeah. You know, there's, there's, because I've been around Los Angeles so long, she, there's certain people that are just so genuine, they can't even help themselves. Like Pamela DeBars. Have you ever had her on this show? You should have her on this show. She's She was the it girl of the 60s. She, she was... She was, she wrote the book uh, Groupie. She's a you know the Groupie. She made Groupie culture, right? And she's just, she's just great. And she just lets it all hang out. And Janice and Janice is like that. She'll just say the craziest stuff. Like she said the stuff about Bill Cosby to us on the TV show. And I was like, I don't know about this. I don't know about this because you never know. I mean, I believed it, but I was like, where are we going here, Janice? Tell me where we're going. She said it back then. <laughs> yeah, she said it. And then, then you know, he's going to come after you with a wrath of lawyers. Everybody in Hollywood kind of knew that. He even admitted it. He admitted it that he gave drugs to women to loosen them up. Why did nobody do anything 20 and 30 years ago? Why do you think that is? What do you think nobody did? Because anything? the power structure is a patriarchy and it protects the bread money winners. Don't shake your head like anything's changed. It's still there. It's just really different, differently uh, structured, right? So that that she said that stuff. Mackenzie told me that she had sex with her dad on, at the at the on celebrity rehab, and I I was like, we got to take our mics off right now. And I made us take the mics off and walk around the corner. I go, what are you fucking talking about? We walked outside the facility. I go, what are you talking about? And she goes, I that's it's in my book. That's, I need to talk about it. And I was like, no, you don't. 
Like America's not going to understand that. They're going to blame you. He's dead. They're going to blame you. Don't do that to yourself, Matt. Did she end up talking about that on Celebrity Rehab? No. But, but she, she went on Oprah later, yeah, huh? Yeah, because the book, eventually the book came out. But I was like, she was so vulnerable. She was she was only like a month sober. Her, like her book is really, really good. Can't. It's very, it's, she had a lot of depth. But do you know the wrath that she took after that Oprah Winfrey, right? She was so sick, though. She was so sick in her book. I think people need no, to I'm re- not saying that it's right she yeah, got yeah, the wrath. Yeah. I'm saying America is a cesspool of viciousness. <laughs> yes. And That's such and a bummer, though, that America didn't take to, the time to read it. She wanted to... Point out something that I, you know, I don't know if it's, I don't, it's the first time I had heard of it in that kind of a world, but I certainly heard about it in working class families. Certainly. It exists here in Los Angeles very much so. We don't want to see it because it's so ugly, right? My wife works in El Monte School District. It's one of the poorest school districts in Los Angeles, you know, where there's poverty and ignorance and violence and trauma there is incest and horrible shit. That's why we want to raise everyone up so the horrible shit goes away, right? And so that it was happening right up here in Laurel Canyon, that was shocking. I'd never heard of anything like that, right? Well, her book is her book is really gnarly. It's one of the gnarlier books I've read. What do you consider the biggest success story with Celebrity Rehab? Just that, you want to know something? I think thousands and thousands of people got sober inspired to get sober just by watching it yep right it's crazy how many people come up to me in airports or tell me or email me or instant message me like i got sober i got two years um because they got to see what it looked like from they just got to see it and they got to see yeah, people a lot do of it people really i well the, i wasn't really aware of the prescription drug epidemic because we started i think in 2007 i was kind of aware but i had no idea of how massive it was across america so i started getting emails about seeing jeff conaway be addicted to prescription drugs and be the worst drug addict in the rehab center <laughs> Really, the prescription drug addicts in America would email me going, I saw him and that's me. I mean, I still go to work every day, but that's me. I'm taking 90 Vicodin a day. That's me. Wow. And and I was just like, whoa, what the hell's going on in America? I'm always curious. And then I started seeing what's going on, that OxyContin and, and just this people just taking way more drugs than we were taking up on King's Road. What is, when you look at drugs now, what is the main drug that you're seeing people abusing? There's now new categories of drugs to be so fearful of is fentanyl. Fentanyl is, is you could, you know, especially car fentanyl. So fentanyl is the strongest analgesic known to man. That's the strongest dosage of morphine you can get. It's a hundred times more powerful than heroin. Car fentanyl is a thousand times more powerful than heroin. So you can get a little bit of pure fentanyl and just die. You just stop breathing, right? And so the huge uptick in death in 2016, 17, 18 was fentanyl because fentanyl is really cheap to produce and we had cut off and, and made illegal OxyContin. So all the OxyContin addicts switched to this lesser known drug called fentanyl. Now the cartels know about fentanyl and they mix it in with the heroin. And you're seeing all across America in one weekend in San Mateo, 10 people died in one Do weekend. Do they mix it with one... cocaine as well? Is that That's true? That's what I've been hearing. Because now, I've hear, heard people have been heard, going under yeah, because they think they're doing cocaine. Coke. But I've also heard that there's these uh, homemade Xanax that you buy on the street, yeah. right? And they don't clean the pill thing because they make 
fentanyl pills because you got to figure it's some guy you want to know where they yeah they're go? not they're not some like organized <laughs> they're not cleaning the thing yeah so the first xanax pill they make after having made a hundred fentanyl pills has a lot of fentanyl in it and you get that xanax pill you die there's not some compliance that's department crazy. that's going around and saying hey <laughs> hey buddy you clean that machine but why do they make them into pill form because americans believe that taking a pill is safe right America is 5% of the world's population. We take almost 50% of the world's medicine. Wow. Think about those numbers. It's so fucked what up. What is so wrong with us? Right? And so I just had a dad talk to me yesterday. His son is, was a drug addict. He was with me years ago, and I was trying to get him sober, and he got sober for a while, and then he's flung around from rehab to rehab. And now he's on six meds, six medicines. He was only on heroin and cocaine. Now he's on, now he's on Suboxone, Xanax, uh, Wellbutrin, uh, Depakote, Seroquel. I mean, America loves gobbling up pills. It's interesting. You've said that, you know, when you've seen someone that's on Suboxone for, you know, and they use that in recovery sometimes for nine months, you said that better that they get on heroin to recover because Suboxone's harder to get off. Well, Is that true? Well, I used to say that. Not I'm, I'm, well, because the fentanyl's in the heroin, you could die. <laughs> so now it's, now it's worse. <laughs> now you can't even do that. You used to have pure heroin. Now you, you're seeing people ODing because the cartels are mixing fentanyl in because it's so cheap, right? Uh, the, the numbers are astonishing. If you can get $2,000 worth of pure car fentanyl, it translates to $30 million worth Holy of opiate shit. product on the street. You, if you think it's going to go away, it's not going to go away. Wow. That kind of profit? Yeah, it's when I first away. heard it from a cop in Texas, because I, I, I go around trying to talk in different communities, and the cop told me those numbers, and I was like, maybe you and I should get in on one. He goes, I thought of Fuck. it. Jesus. Can you imagine a two thousand dollar investment? You get thirty million dollars back. You think the cartels and the drug uh, uh, cartels are going to stop producing that, right? We're going to have to stop having the demand for it. And how we do that is love each other, connect with each other, kind of try to have these human conversations like we're having. Think about it. Think about prior generations and mistakes they made. Think about what. Be mindful of the day that you're living in. That's what I try to do, right? I th I just figure once I made it where I didn't die of drugs and I got sober at 35, I figured if I make it to 50 with a with hepatitis C and a cirrhosis of the liver and and doing all the things that I did and all the drug brain damage I must have, if I can make it to 50, that's plus. When I blew through 50 healthy as I am, I was like, every day is a bonus. Every day after 50 for a guy like me is a bonus. And I live in that bonus. Like, it's just, this is the day. Like, we, we go to Disneyland anytime. The, the last weekend, I was in, I was doing something and I had my son and we were in Claremont. My wife was at the beach with my daughter. And I said, let's just go to the Legoland and get the Legoland Hotel. And she's like, really? And I was like, yeah. And I just went, not planned, not booked. And it was just because you could die tomorrow. You got to fucking live life. Don't put off living life, right? That's what I think a lot of times um, that I try to fight against with millennials. Don't live at your parents' house. Live anywhere but your parents' house. Live anywhere. Live on a friend's couch. You know, get a store. Me and Anthony used to live in an office space on Hollywood Boulevard, and we'd pee in the sink. Like, I know it's harder for girls, but... <laughs> 
don't know if I'm going to be squatting over the sink, Bob. Yeah, I don't know if you can imagine that. Well, Bob. Be better than living in your mom's house. I agree. Bob, you are a living legend, my friend. Thank you for coming on the show. Where I know you got the podcast. Now, what else you got going on? Well, I'm trying to do this TV show. I think it's going to happen sooner or later, but um, it's about aloe and us trying to, you know, bring the problem of the addiction industry is all the rehabs are in Southern California, Malibu, Palm Beach, Florida, fancy, Costa Mesa. fancy places. And the drug problem is in, you know, Huntington, West Virginia, Lakeside, Ohio. And there's no rehabs there. So Evan and I have tried to talk about, we got to go build rehabs there. But the problem is economics and how we do it. So then I had this idea of like, we need to go there, work with the communities, do a TV show about it and bring re really high, good quality rehab to America. Love that. And it's called Don't Die. Like, you know, I started saying it to kids because kids were dying so much like seven years ago. I just started saying it like, I'd hug a kid that I'd counseled for a couple months and they were, I saw him at, you know, 7-Eleven or something. And I just started saying, don't die, because I knew they were using again. Just to draw attention, I know you're using, and what you're doing is way more dangerous than it's ever been before. Please don't die. Can you immediately tell when someone's using in like yeah. five, yeah, yeah, immediately? Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's something about it. I'll tell you a funny story. So... I used to have the office behind Drew's office. We had this, this detox unit at Los Encinas Hospital. It had 12, 11 beds. And then his office was in the middle next to the nurse's station. I used to have to walk over there to talk to him 50 times a day. And, I, and my mind was in a trailer behind the building. <laughs> I've always been the redheaded stepchild of somebody, <laughs> either the chili peppers or Drew. <laughs> <laughs> I so think I, you're fab. But at least I get the trailer behind, right? So I, and I'm walking around and I'm really rushing because I know he's got to leave and we're doing something. And I walk back past the smoking area of the, of the rehab was right there where I would walk through. And I just almost got to the corner and I stopped and I turned and I looked at the smoking table. There was three drug addicts that were in treatment with us. And I go, what is going on with you three? And they were all looking at me. And I go, what the fuck is going on? I could just sense it. They had used. I didn't even look. I didn't even. I just felt it in my shoulder. Like, what the fuck is going on with those guys? And it was that they were they were so nervous. The girl told me, we we're so nervous. You kept walking back and forth from Drew's office. We thought you knew and that we were kicking us out. So I, I saw them. I felt them looking at me like it's oh. a it's an energy. <laughs> it's an energy. Huh? Right. Uh, where can everyone find you? Your Instagram, your podcast, Pimp Yourself Out. It's a, uh, well, Bob Forrest is a dad is my Instagram. I put my kids up there. Here's a weird thing. So I don't like self-promotion. You know, I just think like, oh, picture of two people holding hands on the ocean, come to rehab. I don't like that. So, the, but Evan's impressed upon me. I have to do this. I have to do this. So then I thought, oh, I'll just show my life, right? My life is my kids, my wife, my friends and go to go have fun and go to concerts and go do things, right? Show my life. So as the kids got older and they're more involved in it and they're more on it, I get these notes like, aren't you scared pedophiles are jacking off to your kids? What aren't the you fuck? scared? Like people are so fucking sick. Like, A, yeah, I never not thought of that, but that's what the fuck's wrong with people? people? What is freak wrong out with people? Because I put my kids' pictures on the internet. Like, you know, there's a lot of freaks out there. I was like, Oh my God, I wasn't even thinking of that. 
<laughs> so go to Bob Forrest's adapt. <laughs> so do whatever your pleasure. Unless you're a fucking pedophile, then say the fuck away. And your podcast. My podcast is but Don't Die, Bob Forrest Don't Die podcast. And Lauren's been on I've it. been on yeah. your podcast. It's so much fun. You have an open invitation to come back oh, anytime you, you want when Don't Die launches, because I know it is. Yeah. Come back on. We will. Thank you so much. Thanks, Bob. And really quick, can we just say where anyone can, if someone is out there struggling with addiction, where always, they can... You know, you can always... I have this thing called Rehab Bob or any, anywhere. I'm pretty easy to get a hold of. My cell phone's public I at the end of the movie I don't know if you know it's my cell phone yep. hundreds of people have called that and they can't believe that I answer people have gotten sober from calling that I the guy in Philadelphia I talked to him for two hours because I was I don't know I had nothing to do I, I drank too much coffee and I was up one night guys Bob Forrest <laughs> just gave you his number so if you're three eight oh four three eight four three there you go call me up or text me texting's better <laughs> I texted Bob. I texted Bob today. Two one three eight zero four three eight four three. That is fucking iconic. Bob Forrest just gave you Bob, his number. You may get a little bit of inbound now. I might. I just want to <laughs> warn you ahead of time. You know, I, I, you know, I, I, a lot of people come up to me to talk about the Chili Peppers. I don't mind. It's community. It's about life. It's about love. It's about family. It's about being humans together. You are a dream guest. Well, thank you so much. You guys are so sweet. Let's get a murder thing on your channel. Yeah. Bob's going to help me get a murder a murder mystery on Dear Media. I, I got to be fair. That's the only ones I listen to. I love the murder ones. Bob, maybe we can write one together. We'll find, we'll find one of these guys, one of these people in town. Aren't you we'll... fascinated by murder? I'm fa I might murder you in the morning before 11 <laughs> if you don't bring me coffee, motherfucker. Yeah, if I'm not careful, you might be writing it about me. Dude, I know it's an older demographic, but serial. If he doesn't get off his phone in the morning and pay attention to me for five minutes. You know what you got to do? Do it. I have the same problem. I'm on my phone a lot because that's how I communicate with Jess and Evan and everybody. You got to go in the bathroom and ask, act like you're going to the bathroom. Just okay. sit there with the seat down. Might be so he's in walk. there for four hours. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Bob. <laughs> Guys, if you or anyone you know is struggling with addiction, definitely check out at Allo Recovery. It's A-L-O Recovery, and it's on Instagram. You can message them, and that is the company that Bob owns. They're super responsive through DM, and um, I just think it's a good resource to have. As always, let us know your favorite part of this episode on my latest Instagram at The Skinny Confidential. We'd love to hear your feedback. Uh, let us know what you like, what you don't like, and we'll hop into your inbox and send a bunch of you TSC sparkly pink pop sockets. Make sure you've also rated and reviewed the podcast on iTunes. And with that, see you next time. 